0: We have to make sure that the STPs collect every drop of sewage and treat them to adequate standards. And the standards have become more stringent by the recent NGT ruling. But we have not figured out that wastewater is actually a resource. Hi, I am Vishwanath. I am a trustee at the Biome Environmental Trust based out of Bangalore and you're listening to Understanding the Future Podcast.
1: Hello everyone, I'm Puneet Gandhi, Senior Associate with the Climate Center for Cities at the National Institute of Urban Affairs and welcome to the Season 3 of Understanding the Future Podcast. I have been working and studying in the field of sustainability and climate change for more than 8 years and I have realized that I have a lot of questions on how we can build cities in India that are more climate focused. With Understanding the Future podcast, I interact with experts, entrepreneurs and government officials to understand what it takes to bring all the different solutions to the ground as well as how can systemic changes be developed on ground. We will further anchor all the topics being discussed with different skill sets required. This will help us understand the future of cities and future of work in Indian context. If you are tuning in for the first time, do check out our previous episodes. Also, don't forget to check out the Climate Practitioners India Network, a members-led solutions-oriented platform for climate practitioners across India, and join it through the show notes. Hope you enjoy the podcast.
0: Senior Associate at the Climate Center for Cities and today we have with us Vishwanath S. He is a trustee of the Bio-Environmental Trust. Today he will help us understand the topic of water security in cities. Welcome to the show Vishwanath. Thank you, pleasure to be here. Sir, I think this is a very interesting topic especially in this day and age when there are all of a sudden huge amount of rainfall. Then there is a drought coming as well. So, what do we exactly mean by water security in the city, and what are the different aspects of it? Then we can start our conversation. With. So, for me, water security actually starts with people in a city, and it means that people have access to safe, reliable, and sustainable water of an assured quality daily at their household level. That would define what security means. In conjunction, it could also mean that we should also ensure adequate sanitation systems to take care of the wastewater so generated after the consumption. That is a construct at an individual level. At a city level, the constructor of water security is how do I balance and source my water from perhaps multiple sources so that if one source breaks down or has a problem, then the other sources can step in to ensure that the water is available to all citizens of a required standard and of required quality. Okay, uh, that's, that's really interesting and I think you have covered quite a lot of uh, points that we would also like to understand in a better depth. And uh, I think let's start with first the multiple sources of water. What are those different sources? Where do we generally, based on the geography, how does it perform? And what are things we need to make sure that uh, those things are better taken care of? So for a long time, our urban uh, areas, uh, especially in the now larger cities, would depend on their local uh, water sources like lakes, ponds, or rivers and streams for their water supply. Somewhere in the 19th century, we realized that these sources were perhaps not sufficient enough or they're contaminated too much by wastewater and sewage and solid waste from the surrounds. And therefore, we had to depend on a source which was carrying fresh water reliably of a certain quality. So we started to move away from our cities and build dams and reservoirs on our rivers and streams and started to pump water from farther and farther sources. This became the approach that cities took. So we get our water from generally quite far away now, for example, a city like Bangalore gets its water from about 100 kilometers away from the river Kaveri. Or the city of Hyderabad gets it from about 220 kilometers away from even the Godavari River, the Krishna River. Right? So, sources of water have distanced themselves from the city in search of both quantity and quality. That's been the phenomenon. And local resources have been neglected, especially groundwater resources and aquifers. Now, the trend is to relook at these local resources and see how they can be managed better, perhaps as a supplement to the pipe water supply, or if the conditions are favourable, as a complete replacement to the pipe water supply, if that is possible. So multiple sourcing of water is the order of the day. Local sourcing, local water resources are increasingly in finding more favour. Rainfall is being looked at favorably as a uh, local resource to rainwater harvesting. And the direction is to make it more ecological, less energy intensive, and less carbon emitted. That's, that's really interesting because uh, but one of the first questions that does come to my mind nowadays is, especially with Tier One cities, uh, and uh, that is that we are going a lot more vertical now, and then the sources will be enough even if we do uh, rainwater harvesting and so, on. so, like I said, it depends on the rainfall. Uh, pattern in the city, the rainfall volumes in the city, and the rainfall volumes on the plot itself. Right? So, at uh, the yeah. more vertical we go, the less rainfall we have per capita of that occupied yeah. space. So, therefore, it will not be sufficient in many places. However, there are many ways uh, and many reasons to do rainwater harvesting. One of the major reasons is to prevent urban flooding. Because the moment the wind on a side, it sends more water out in greater volumes and bulk. It's the city services that have to manage. So we do rainwater harvesting for mitigating urban flooding, augmenting groundwater and supplementing our water. We have to look at the city as a whole and the apartment as one constituent of the city. And look at what is appropriate for the density of construction. High rise, low rise, high density low-income settlements, all these will have different strategies of managing rainwater as well as pipe water products. Okay. Uh, And how will, so maybe if you can give a bit more context on the lines of that, uh, especially I think with the new buildings coming up, they might still have more in-laws that you have to create rainwater harvesting, but especially in an area which is, uh, in the slums, or uh, which will generally be more on the floodplains or certain things, and uh, more ecologically sensitive areas, is where generally we find slums. How can they kind of control water So here's what we did now term as grey and green infrastructure. Grey infrastructure is the pipe infrastructure that brings in water to our cities. Green infrastructure is local infrastructure like rainwater harvesting, aquifers, wetlands, ponds, lakes, streams, and springs. There has to be a judicious mix of both green and green infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Here's where green infrastructure works best. For those who have a higher income, for example, high-rise apartments, low-rise apartments, gated communities, they have the monies and they have the space to invest in green infrastructure. For example, they can do rainwater harvesting better. And they can recharge the groundwater better or they can ensure that the ponds in their area are protected and preserved better. Now, this is a contribution that the richer part of the city have to give in terms of green infrastructure. So that the green infrastructure of pipe water supply reaches our low-income settlements and delivers universal water supply. We cannot expect the low-income residents to do rainwater harvesting. A. The quality of the roof is bad. B. The size of their households are bad. And see, there is no money or space to be able to do rainwater harvesting. So it's not socially just to expect them to do the rainwater harvesting. We need to protect them from the vagaries of floods, stormwater management. We need to ensure that they have piped water supply and universal connection. Whereas the richer people, the more well-off, have to contribute to the green infrastructure beyond their burden already put on the green infrastructure. So if we are able to do green infrastructure. Reduced amount of volume uh, of water they need from the grain infrastructure. There will be more water to spare for the low income. That's the principle by which we operate. Okay. And, uh, understand, it makes much more sense. And uh, you have pointed this out that uh, when we're talking about water security as well, uh, that you need access of water every day. But in terms of water security, is it better to have 24-7 access or is it better to have 3 hours a day as well? My feeling is that the minimum for water security is universal coverage. Every yeah. household in the city should have access to a pipe water company. So what we are doing currently in rural India, Ardhar Nal jal as we call it. We yeah. promise to deliver to every household 55 liters per capita per day through a tap inside the household. That is the goal for urban India also. That should be the yeah. goal for urban India also. In my opinion, there should be no compromise on 24 bar 7 water supply. 24 bar 7 water supply will ensure that there is no disease outbreak or there is no contaminated water flowing in the pipes, It would otherwise flow even if you get reliable water for 2 to three, 3 hours. It's not a question of uh, 2 to 3 hours water supply alone. It's how we design our system. If we design our systems for 24 bar 7 water supply, we'll make sure that there is no leaking in the pipe, that the best quality pipes are used that there's enough pressure to take the water to up to 10 meters or even 12 meters by gravity alone, through the system alone. Mm. Therefore, the water will be able to reach a third floor or even a fourth floor no, without any pumping. And we have to realize that without 24 bar 7, the kind of investments people have to make to ensure secure water supply or available water supply is huge. We build some tanks, we build overhead tanks, we use pumps, we use energy to pump all this low pressure water low-quality water to our overhead tanks, whatever the systems that we create, mm. at great cost to ensure the 24 bar 7 supply for ourselves. If we are able to move that private investment in 24 bar 7 water supply to public investment, we can mm. do with a lot less monies and we could generate uh, and deliver 24 bar 7. This should okay. be gold standard for ourselves in, India, in urban. India. Okay, interesting. And, uh, you're mentioning about the energy efficiency in this. Have there been any studies done or you know of that? How much will we actually be saving up if uh, we move more towards 24-7, especially in terms for of sure, infrastructure? There have been uh, small studies done, for example, by a professor from the Administrative Staff College of uh, India, mm. where he was showing that these investments are enormous for an ordinary household in Bangalore, for example. The alternative investments in some tanks, pumps, and overhead tanks will be of the nature of 1 lakh rupees or more. And if it's a borewell that he or she is drilling, because there's no pipe water supply regularly, the cost of borewells is 4 lakh rupees or more. For Mm -hmm. individual household, this is the kind of money we are spending. And then Mm -hmm. there's a recurring cost. We don't realize that we pay for water through our energy bills. The electricity we use to pump the water up gives us the bill uh, as an electricity bill. We don't think Mm -hmm. that it's a water bill. But a lot of it is for our water pumping uses. So, there are enormous costs and there are studies to suggest that this uh, sort of private uh, capital is uh, misdirected and is suboptimal. Okay, no, that's, uh, because I think eventually it all comes back to how can that be managed in a better way. And I think with 24 by 7, what, uh, now there is another thing that is uh, pretty dominant is on the lines of sewage treatment plant as well. That is also required in a much better way with the connected pipe infrastructure. So, how can that be made sure that that is created in a better way? Traditionally, we suffer uh, suffered from the fact that we usually invested in water supply streams upfront, and then we realized that there's a huge amount of wastewater, including grey water and sewage water being generated, and then we put in the sewage networks and the sewage treatment plants to pick this up and clean it, So, funnily enough, especially in a city like Bangalore, it was found that if you just supplied fresh water, and not take care of the wastewater, you're causing more health problems than what is sorted out with the fresh water. Because this wastewater is in the environment, it's a place for vector-borne diseases to breathe, it contaminates your local waters and the pipe water supply that you kill, and it's simply not enough if just pipe water supply is given. Yeah. So, the realization now is that both these investments have to be together. That water supply and sanitation services, it could be on-plot or off-plot, like storage networks and STPs have to go together. We've also realized that merely taking sewage network away and having dysfunctional STPs is no longer the way to go. We have to make sure that the STPs collect every drop of sewage and treat them to adequate standards. And the standards have become more stringent by the recent NGT ruling. But we've not figured out that wastewater is actually a resource. It's a misplaced resource for now because we're not seeing it as a resource. It has the capability of generating energy and power and it's applied for agricultural use has tremendous possibility for ensuring farming livelihoods and food security for the city. One example is being tried out in Bangalore, there are many such examples which are being tried out in other cities, but wastewater is the new goal. No, absolutely agreed, uh, but uh, why is that uh, the adoption of wastewater is still so less and why do Especially, I think the most amount of wastewater is being used, is also being planned towards industries and your gardeners and agricultural use, but why is it that it is still not uh, so popular? So what's happened is uh, there are two reasons for this. One is that the economic investments in wastewater infrastructure have been suboptimal. We have not invested enough to be able to collect it and treat it enough to figure out what it could be used for. We are doing that now. Yeah. We are doing it over the last two to three years, especially we are doing we're uh, a lot of uh, social content, seeing that there's a lot of this wastewater available and therefore we are to find uses for it. And, of course, industrial use is a good, quick fix because they don't need very high quality of water. And there's no public health risk involved in supplying the wastewater to industries. And industries can also afford to pay for it. So, therefore, there will be a certain amount of wastewater which will have to go to industries. But we're also realizing that wastewater has ecological uses. If you fill lakes and streams and rivers with it or wetlands with it, then it can regenerate biodiversity. And we're also realizing that it has agricultural use. That it is supplied to farmers because it's nutrient rich, the farmers need less fertilizers and their crop productivity can be high, provided we take care of the health risk contaminants. Right? So these realizations are, these, these studies are emerging now, and we're going to start to invest in this big time in the coming five to ten years. And so this this is therefore the whole range of possibilities opening to opening up to us. Just as an example, Bangalore would see itself as a water and fertilizer factory. Not as a net consumer of water as an urban area is often seen of taking yep. away water from rural yep. areas and becoming resource-consumptive, but it actually can be resource-regenerated and it can start to supply more water to the farmers and to the lakes in the surrounding areas, which yep. can enhance uh, agricultural productivity. These new imaginations are taking root now and that's the future. Okay. Well, and that's, that's super interesting that if we can maybe properly get into the circular economy of water over there as well because somewhere... It's important, uh, but just, uh, thinking a bit more and, uh, just a doubt that I have. So, a lot of times now, the wastewater, uh, helps in developing natural gases, which is used for the power consumption of that factory itself, or the plant itself. Uh, if we are making sure that we are treating that plant to that level, does it still remain as a fertilizer or not, uh, just a It still does because what we are doing is we are adopting anaerobic decomposition to capture methane and then use that to generate energy or electricity and then run the plant, right? But that in no way diminishes the nutrient content of the wastewater. That is still remaining. We are able to capture both the energy and the nutrient content if we do this kind of anaerobic treatment. Okay, okay. Uh, But that would also mean that we need double the amount of infrastructure in terms of... uh, Sending back the waste uh, water that is treated outside of the city as Right? It, it depends on the geography of the city. For example, in okay. Bangalore, the natural valleys take away the wastewater on its own, right? So mm-hmm. the, the, the natural streams take it out and yeah. there's an advantage of topography. It okay. will depend on the topography of the city. But what happens is that once you bring in wastewater in a flat terrain, it mm-hmm. doesn't really take too much energy to pump it to the out, uh, outside uh, peripheral hinterland. Okay. It would be ideal if we have decentralized systems where the consumption of the treated wastewater and the generation of the wastewater are as close as possible. These would be the new imaginations of urban city design, of water supply design and wastewater design as we go forward. For the existing sunk infrastructure, we would want to take away this wastewater to the agricultural interlanded part. Okay, Okay. interesting. And in that case, uh, can this again be used in the, uh, especially with the urban farming concept, coming up more and more and we are trying to decentralize it. Uh, will that be useful over there itself or in that case? So, it- yeah. so for example, it's mandatory now to have uh wastewater treatment plants for a yeah. set of 20 flats or above in Bangalore, yeah. a set of 50 flats or above in many cities, right? Yeah. So, there's a localized availability of uh, wastewater. What we find is that urban farming can be completely facilitated by it. Hmm. In fact, there's a surplus remaining after the water generated at these decentralized units are used for urban farming. There's still more surplus available. You need to find ways by taking that water to a nearest wetland or lake and then ensuring fisheries for it. Okay. Or bird biodiversity. So all these possibilities are now there. What, what we need are better designers, right? We have designed in silos. Our urban spaces have been designed in silos. Master plans, land use plans, building bylaws have been developed by planners and architects. Wastewater and water systems are being developed by sanitary engineers or public health engineers. Yeah. Now there has to be a coordination between the two where we design cities considering water and wastewater as a resource to be integrated with the master plan in the building Yeah, that's uh, super interesting. And uh, now I think that does cover some parts of it. That okay. We have tried to understand the source, we have tried to understand how do we conserve sources and uh, as well on the lines of how do we make sure that there is a better reuse and recycle. But uh, in a country like India, where urban flood is now a very common phenomenon. How can that be tackled, especially in terms of water security? So what's happening with urban floods are two things which are exacerbating the situation. One is the urban heat island effect and the climate crisis, which is increasing the intensity of rainfall in mm-hmm. a short duration. Right. So both these phenomenon uh, of increased intensity of rainfall is a problem because there's too much of water available in a big time. The second is the real concretization of our cities. As we hard pave our cities, the coefficient of runoff, as it is called, the volume of water coming from each individual site or plot, now increases five-fold time, at times, six-fold at times. So this leaves us with a huge burden of stormwater to manage. Yeah. We can look back at our traditional topographies and drainage systems, which are existing in our cities, our ponds and lakes and streams and rivers, and make sure that they're protected. And we can design with the new intensity of rainfall to make sure that a rainwater harvesting occurs at every building or apartment, so that a portion of the rainwater is held by every apartment or building. In Bangalore, for example, sixty millimeters of rainfall has to be held by every building. Okay. So that you retain or retain this volume of water and then the next step is that the stormwater drainage infrastructure, which is a modern stormwater drainage infrastructure overlaid on traditional waterways, are allowed to take the water away to fill our lakes and ponds and then to take to our lakes in a clean fashion for it to be reused downstream, right? Mm-hmm. So modern stormwater drainage design will have to incorporate traditional systems and prepare for the future in terms of the increased climate crisis based in polygons. Okay and i think i'll again come back to the range of the harvesting part uh, that especially with the permeability and i think just as someone who is still trying to understand this it's that we already have a lot of infrastructure which is non-permeable now how can someone make sure that that can be utilized for the whole rain or the harvesting it's a simple thing every site every plot has to devote 5% of its area for water just 5% of its area. Items. So, in Bangalore, every plot can have a recharge well, which is just 3 yes. feet in diameter and 20 feet deep, right? Mm-hmm. And depending on the topography and the, the topology and what the groundwater lithology is like, this can take in a water at 10,000 meters per hour. So, you can re-architect or building spaces with very little intrusion to be able to store or recharge the rainwater. Then look at a road and stormwater drainage in Road runoff comes into the stormwater drain. Yeah. Every bit of the stormwater drain can be designed as infiltration drains. When yeah. you pick the water and push it into the aquifer, right? Yeah. So, it's possible to re architect our flyovers, our metros, our roads, our individual buildings, or apartments to be able to hold on to rainwater or to recharge it into the aquifer. And especially since 50% of urban area is yet to be built, we can include it as part of our master plans and building bylaws. So that yeah. they already incorporated a design stage and therefore the cost then becomes needed. Right. So rainwater harvesting is something that is a push based on the lessons we have learned over the last 10 to 15 years in many of our cities and refine it to include it as part of design in our future uh, constructions of cities. Okay. Yeah. That does make sense. And uh, does that same apply to stormwater drainage as well? Because a lot of times that's already developed. The, the city has grown out and there might not be space for it. If we are able to pull away sewage flows in these stormwater, through a good sewerage network which collects all sewage, if we are able to put in a good solid-based collection system whereby plastics and biodegradables are collected and not end up in our drains, then the drains themselves can be re-architected to infiltrate rainwater into that water. Or to even treat it in the inline wetlands so that when they reach a lake or a river, they are of a higher quality than when they went into the storm. All this is possible, uh, but it calls for an integrated thinking. Like, for example, in this case, it calls for sewerage infrastructure, solid waste infrastructure, and stormwater drainage infrastructure to talk to each other. Yeah, that that does make sense, and that does sound like a big challenge in itself as well. Because, uh, so what what is something that you currently feel is the biggest challenge for India or cities in India in terms of developing water security? So, one of the big challenges for me is institution building. Do we have the institutions now which have the design capabilities to design for the modern requirements, modern ecological and social requirements? And second, do these institutions have the financial muscle to be able to invest in these kind of infrastructure? Do we have consistently undercharged our water uh, supply our sewerage and our uh, solid waste management. Mm-hmm. And if you have charged anything, we have lost it through inefficiencies and through leakages. It could also be corruption, we want to as a leak. if you are able to fix the institutional setup first, then have the capabilities, the human resource capabilities of good design. And if you then have the money invest, then our cities will be the economic engines plus the livelihood engines that they are, that we are setting out to be. And remember, good management of floods, good management of water, provides single largest employment, livelihoods that is possible, it becomes a huge public health benefit in which a lot of people don't then have to spend money on health uh, issues, which is a huge spend for the poor especially. And third, that the economic engine that the city is can reach its full potential if these infrastructure services are in place. You have to always have all these three goals in mind when you design system. Interesting. And uh, you did touch upon the water union. I think this is uh, one of the, generally the most controversial thing as well, even while administration is trying to develop it uh, because of the sensitivity of it. Uh, but how can, is it possible to be able to just use public funds to develop this kind of uh, system? No, it will not simply be enough if taxpayers pay for it. The consumers have also started to pay for water services. Especially the rich consumers. What has happened is, in the name of the poor, if the rich are getting the subsidy. The poor don't even get the water connection, or if they get the water connection, they don't get good quality, quantity, and quality of water. Right. So, in the name of the poor, we are discriminating against the poor. We will have to fix the pricing of water right. We will have to capture the human rights component. Make sure that everybody has access to a certain fixed volume of water on a daily basis, free of charge or at very less prices. But beyond a certain range, we have to in the economic price of water to be able to recover the investments put into the water so that it becomes a tangible proposition. And therefore we have money to invest in making sure that the system is repaired, functional at all times, and expanded as the city growth. Without these monies coming into the utilities or the institutions responsible for water supply and sanitation, it is fighting a losing war, a losing battle. And the real issue is finance, in my opinion, next only to institutions. Okay. And so, you basically mean the kind of telescopic pair that can be plugged into the here. Absolutely. First is metering. You need to get volumetric metering, smart meters into every connection that we get. Two, it means increasing block tariff, as it is called. So, the principle in which industries and commercial users of water, you know, cross-subsidize the domestic sector, but also within the domestic sector, that after a certain level of consumption, it could be the human right to water, economic pricing kicks in so that we recover the costs and we send signals of water conservation and less wastage of water. In conjunction with 24 bar 7, this would be the greatest single benefit that India will get in its Charbani area. This is just coming from the previous experience in the energy sector that uh, has been. So I think that they have also tried to do the same thing on the lines of uh, subsidizing the agricultural tariff with the commercial tariff. Uh, but somewhere it has I will not say that is the only reason, but somewhere that has also caused a lot of uh, financial burden for the whole uh, distribution system, uh, electricity distribution uh, system. Uh, eventually, won't that somehow cause in the water sector as well if we try to do just that kind of system? The current system is completely untenable. You know, we are dependent on okay. funds which come from the JICA, the World Bank, or the Asian Development Bank to mm. further our infrastructure. We are throwing good money after leaking infrastructure. This is simply undoable. Yes, I understand in the electricity sector, we figured out that simply separating the agricultural consumption from the other consumptions did not solve the problem. But at least the electricity regulatory commissions which are in place, the regulatory authorities are now saying that that agricultural consumption which is subsidized should be paid for by the budget of the state. It should go to the ESCOMs. So that we are able to pay the KPTC, the yeah. transmission companies and the, the generation companies in the future. And that these volumes of these subsidies are understood in monetary terms, right? How much energy is going there? What is the extent of subsidy? These yeah. kind of measures will only push for better economic behavior. Obviously, these changes will not occur overnight. But we yeah. should set ourselves the trajectory or the path right now in the water sector. If we want our urban areas to function well. Okay, and in this kind of things, at least on the, because most of the cities also have water as a mandate. What kind of bylaws can be implemented so that it can help cities in developing such kind of water security? And also I'll say, uh, monitoring and implementation of it, because I think even if there are bylaws, monitoring and implementation becomes one of the biggest step. So, this is a cooperation between citizens and the government. that There's a monitoring yeah. and the regulation that has to follow, but it's also good citizen behavior that has to follow. Yeah. A couple of things that we need to do with our bylaws. Yeah. For example, if there's a good aquifer, a shallow aquifer in a particular area, do not encourage basements. Basement parking, single-tier, double-tier, triple-tier basements, destroy aquifers, empty the aquifers from shallow aquifer water and throw it away into the stormwater water. Understand the role of salivators, their potential to hold on to rainwater and their ability to provide water that you need. So design your bylaws appropriately. In high water table areas, no basements should be allowed, for example. Second thing, bylaws now mandate that every flat should have its own meter. It's not enough if the whole set of apartments has one meter. Every flat should have its own meter mandated in Bangalore. Yeah. Another mandate, if you have a sum tank and an overhead tank, make sure that there's an automatic off don't have overhead tanks which are leaking like uh, overflowing like hell, right? So, you mm-hmm. have that as a mandate. Mandate that there's a wastewater treatment plant which just to keep wastewater beyond a certain volume and then reuse it as much as possible. Whether within the uh, apartments or outside the apartments in a community area, identify the property, right? Mm-hmm. So, mandate for water-efficient fixtures, aerators, flush tanks, showers, washing machines, dish uh, washing machines, which should have a water efficiency mark. We don't have the equivalent of an energy mark in the water efficiency mark in all our water use appliances. We should mandate that. And mandate solid waste collection. If solid waste collection is ensured, then most of our drains will be free from the structure and the plastics, which causes a lot of problems in water flow. So mm. it's a whole bunch of things that can be done through master plans and building bylaws if we are putting our mind to it. This is just a set of examples I gave. Yeah. No, no, that's uh, that's quite inclusive of uh, everything as well, which is interesting to see. And uh, in this, because uh, majority of the funding generally comes from outside, either public funds or uh, any kind of grants or something, how can that be, because that's again, uh, while we are doing the net meeting, we might be able to do the net metering. Uh, can just the capex calls be covered by those, and then the opex comes from these things? Will it function in that line of thought? In fact, in fact, in the individual apartments and buildings, the capex opex is all based on all on the apartment itself. They run the system as per an independent entity of its own, and the okay. supplemented water provided private water tanks and private water supply. So this is what we yeah. need. Yeah. That's because our institutions are broke. Our institutions are not able to deliver water as per demand, right? If we yeah. set our institutions right, that is the cheapest water and that's the cheapest sewage treatment that's available. Yeah. So, somewhere we have to fix our institutions quickly so that apartments are not to bear the unbearable cost of uh, inefficiencies of the larger institutions. And in this, how can, uh, like, just coming from the general perspective of it, that while a lot of campaigns can be done, uh, even by municipalities or other... Uh, NGOs, how can we make sure and ensure that people do available to these things because it's a very difficult behavioral change as well, somewhere that we are trying to bring in? So that's like putting Bandit on box. what we do with these campaigns of rainwater yeah. harvesting and all other things. Is, the real problem is not in like that. We are substituting yeah. for uh, the institutional inefficiencies with this. The uh-huh. long-term solution lies in the institutional reform and the institutional ability to deliver the water. Okay. In addition to that, citizen awareness and rainwater harvesting, can only be a supplement to the overall water requirement of the city. And a good citizen's behavior will improve the livability of the city, no more, no less. It will not be a substitute for the institution's ability to deliver water, pipe water supply, or to take away sewage and sanitation. Yeah, You should not look for substitutions. You should look for supplementations to citizens' campaigns. Right? Yeah. So, for now, the citizens' uh, behavior campaign and the behavior change campaigns are in a way misdirected. Hmm. Okay. I think can, can you elaborate a bit? I will I'll be happy to answer. So, they over-promise and under, under-deliver. So, a lot more is expected from rainwater harvesting their minds of least, people to campaign as well to solve the problem of the of the city, right? It will yeah. not. Uh, so, it will only be a supplement. It will only be able to manage uh, a bit of uh, the stormwater also in this particular case, right? So, there are over-expectations created and therefore, when it under-delivers, there's a lack of acceptance of these systems, right? Yeah. yeah. So, unfortunately, all the energy is, mis, in a sense, misdirected because they should all focus on institutional reform. That is the gorilla in the road. Okay. That's, that's pretty interesting and that's a uh, pretty interesting to see that how all these things are connected and can be solved together. And, uh, and I think one of the last question that we generally ask is on the lines of uh, what are the skill sets then that required that for someone working on the ground? What are the skill sets required to make sure that uh, we are able to develop water security in our cities? So this is the, this is the era of multidisciplinarity. We need hydrologists, hydrogeologists, ecologists, community behavior specialists, social uh, scientists, civil engineers, and electrical mechanical engineers of all kinds to come together to create plans for oxygen. So any skill set is of great use provided we are able to create the platform for those skill sets to deliver a coherent design and then a coherent uh, implementation. Yeah. We lack good designers of water supply and uh, sanitation systems. We lack them. Yeah. We lack good implementers. There are, we lack good contractors to deliver things on the ground. High yeah. quality contract is very difficult to be delivered on the ground. We lack imaginations. We lack community outreach to be able to pursue uh, people to be able to pay more for services which are more or higher, right? We lack the ability to get the water connectivity to the poor in in terms of uh, the human rights values that uh, need to be enshrined in water, and make sure that universal connection for water and sanitation is uh, accessed. So that's a lot of uh, capabilities and skills which come into the into the picture. The first step is to build the right platform for be able to include all these skill sets to be able to deliver the results we need. Our water supply and sewerage boards now have to change themselves as water management boards. And be ecologically, socially, and technically capacitated to be able to deliver that. We have 20th century institutions. We need to create the 21st century institutions in an era of climate crisis and social injustice. Yeah, so, so skill sets, fantastic amount of skill sets come, can come into play. Young entrepreneurs can deliver better meters, social entrepreneurs can deliver better wastewater systems, can deliver mm, better pumps, better pipes, so many things technologically, right? Yeah. They can deliver that. So, the sky's the limit. That's that's a very interesting point of view. And I do agree that innovation is something that's uh, picking up and it's much more multidisciplinary these days than ever. Uh, I think pure sciences has now gone towards more big sciences. That's where we are finding more and more information these days. Uh, but, thank you. This was uh, pretty great uh, talking to you. I'd also like to just uh, keep the floor open if you think that I have missed out on any that. You would like to cover it uh, for this particular session. So, one of the things uh, that we need to remember that cities are embedded as part of river basins, and unfortunately, river basins do not have institutions to manage water at the basin scale. Right, the old forests, the runoffs, the catchments, the tributaries, the streams, the springs, which feed our rivers. What we are doing now is just putting up dams in our rivers and imagining that the water flow of the river can be consistent as it was in the past and then shipping it to our urban areas. So, the role of the city starts with the forest in the river basin which needs to be protected. How do we start the dialogue between urban residents and the forests upland in the river basin which actually feed our cities and provide us ecological services? We need frameworks of communication and narratives which will do this connect for us. And that's very crucial for us if we are going to withstand the shock of climate crisis. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was uh, uh, insightful to you know and well. And uh, thank you for this whole conversation. It did bring in some of the, park up some of the plugs in my brain as well that, okay, uh, there's so many things that can be done, out and that be done? Now, uh, that's great you know. Uh, thank you, Krishna. My pleasure, my pleasure. Thank you.
1: Thank you for tuning in the podcast. Do subscribe to the podcast on your favorite platform and follow us on all social media channels. For more details about the Climate Centre for Cities and registration on Climate Practitioners India Network, click on the link in the show notes. The episode is conceptualized and produced by Punit Gandhi. A big thank you to the whole team at CQ and NIUA for supporting the development of the podcast. Stay tuned for the next episode.